And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. John Vance. He's former pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Rock Tavern, New York. Semi-retired now in West Virginia, involved in pulpit supply and writing, uh, advising Redeemer here, and also occasionally relaxing in West Virginia. Uh, pastor Vance, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, it's it's my privilege. I love the work of Redeemer and believe in it, and um, I'm happy to uh, not only advise, but to once in a while speak on the airwaves. <laughs> well, it's uh, wonderful to have you on. Uh, today's subject is quite interesting. You know, uh, statistically, we have seen wars um, over the millennia, over the past centuries, and uh, statistically speaking, we'll probably get involved in another war before too long. I hope not. I sincerely hope not. But um, the very basis for getting involved in a war is what we'd like to talk about today. And uh, there's something called just war theory, and we'd like to explore that. And so maybe to get us started, Pastor Vance, you're familiar with these things. Uh, How did that theory develop? Of course, there have always been wars and rumors of wars and always will be till the end of the age. That's the uh, history of the world. So uh, out of that, uh, ancient peoples to the present have thought about what is just and unjust pertaining to war. And so over the years, particularly in the West, there's built up a theory of just war, justum bellum, just war theory. And uh, these theories, of course, you can find them in, for instance, uh, ancient Greece. Uh, They had made a distinction between those that were Greek and those that were not Greek, the barbarians, and they treated them differently, so they developed some rules to do that. And then, of course, in Plato's Republic, if anyone has read it, and many people have, or at least smatterings of it, you find that uh, Tracy Marcus, one of his characters, really coined the phrase, uh, might makes right, and he thought that, uh, that if you were powerful, whatever you imposed on others uh, in the way of war was just. Uh, so he was he was touting uh, power. But most people have rejected those kinds of things. Even, even the Chinese developed a just war theory during the warring states period before Christ, the 5th and 3rd centuries. I used to teach some Chinese philosophy, so I remember that part pretty well. But to cut to the chase in the West, really the first person to give it a systematic treatment was St. Augustine, as he did so many things. And, you know, he lived in a period uh, in the fourth century where Rome was falling apart. Everything was falling apart around him, and he contemplated a great deal about war. So he developed some, some principles about war. For instance, he talked about uh, the right to go to war. You have to have a just cause. He called that uh, jus ad bellum, which means jus ad bellum means uh, justice in going to war. And in that, he developed some some points. He says not anyone can just wage a war. It has to be done by lawful authority. And here he was relying upon the Bible. In particular, uh, he was uh, dealing with Romans chapter 13. And and, and if I could, I'll just read those verses that prompted his, his thinking on this subject. Yeah. He, he says in uh, verse 3, 
for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, which is an amazing phrase, isn't it? He calls the state the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. So Augustine, when he read that, he, he, he developed this idea that not just anyone can declare war. Uh, let, let's say, for instance, we were to go to war with Canada. Uh, North Dakota, which borders Canada, couldn't declare war. It wouldn't be a lawful authority, but the United States could for a just cause. So it had to be lawful authority, and from that he developed the idea of a just cause and right intentions, and for him, war had to be a last resort. So so that really is the way that uh, the just war theory developed in the West. Uh, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century actually elaborated on Augustine, and he raised some funny questions. I know I'm being a little long here, but I'll, I'll just tell you what he the kind of questions he addressed. He wanted to know, uh, is some kind of war lawful? And he addressed that question. He asked the question, is it lawful for clerics to fight, that is, bishops and priests? And he really said no. Is it lawful for belligerents to lay an ambush? And he discusses that. Is it lawful to fight on holy days, which he thought it was? So, that's the way the theory developed, at least in the West, through uh, Augustine and Aquinas, and then later theologians and philosophers added additions and refinements. That's interesting. I, we don't glibly talk about war. Um, those who have gone to war come back, and they are seemingly forever changed. Many men are severely scarred. Um, they've seen many times their brothers in arms die a horrible death, and so we, we're we very cautious to speak of war, and yet, since it happens, it's prudent to be prepared in our thinking to think properly about this. Perhaps some of our listeners are involved in government. Perhaps some will be part of a decision whether to go to war or not. What a weighty decision that must be. I'm thinking that nations who are informed by a Christian conscience, probably have, they throttle their war efforts. Uh, Yes, you must destroy the enemy, but there's some things that you do and some things that you don't do. For example, civilians and protecting those who we're not warring against. What does just war look like today? Well, it has been refined since the time of Augustine and Aquinas, and since the uh, uh, 17th and 18th century even more. There's lots of uh, works out there. Uh, Even the War College uh, deals with these matters in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I'm a little familiar with that that, uh, college there because, uh, you know, at Westminster, we used to have some West Point people there, and they would discuss these things and go down there and and, and study at the War College. But you're right. Uh, that's the reason Gustin says, you know, war is a last resort. It, it, it must not be first or second or third. It must be last because it's so heinous and destructive. Uh, and, and it reminded me in, in your uh, uh, 
talking there about the great generation. Many of them came home. They saw things that we can't imagine, but they never discussed them hardly. It's hard yes. to drag it out of them. I can remember my uncles and so forth who went to war uh, because they, they saw things that you couldn't speak of uh, and, and you know, want, want to remember. C.S. Lewis, when he, he hardly ever mentions his uh, participation in the war in World mm. War II at all. I mean, uh, he hardly mentions it uh, because he didn't want to talk about it. But uh, you ask, what does just war theory look like today? Well, there are really three components uh, to uh, just war theory, uh, three broad categories that we uh, talk about. The first is justice in going to war. Uh, you said bellum is the Latin. That's that's the phrase usually used. And so uh, that is important. Uh, but war must always, in this case, be uh, done uh, uh, for a just cause with right authority and so forth. And then there is justice in war. It's not just enough to have a right cause to go to war, but there must be justice in war, uh, use in bellow. Uh, and, and you talk there about who are, you've already mentioned this, who are legitimate targets uh, in war, not civilians, not women and children and older people. Um, and and the discussion is uh, when you uh, justice in war is how much force do you really use? Uh, you know, you don't uh, use a sledgehammer to kill uh, a pest, uh, a bug of some sort, and uh, that 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 is uh, a matter that uh, philosophers and uh, politicians have given a great deal of thought to. And of course, where does the responsibility lie uh, for people who are conducting war? You probably remember the May Lai incident in in uh, Vietnam, or heard about it, where a captain. Uh, went overboard in killing uh, when he didn't have to, and he was uh, he was prosecuted for that. But there's one more aspect of, of what just war looks like today, and that is you might say post-war justice or use postbellum. That that is about how you impose uh, conditions on a defeated people. You know, after the Weimar Republic in Germany was humiliated, it did lead in some ways to the rise of Hitler. So you have to watch how you treat people that you defeat. Uh, you should respect their traditions and cultures when you impose conditions on them. And, of course, there has to be talk of maybe reparations in some case uh, uh, with respect to World War II in particular. And uh, who's to rule these people after you defeat them? So those are the kinds of questions that people ask at Just War Theory, and Christians ought to be concerned about these things because we are concerned about justice. Yeah, and it's really uh, almost tempting when when you're a, uh, in a country that is one of the world's superpowers and the media is constantly uh, capturing pictures and videos of missiles launching and that sort of thing, it's easy to forget all that's involved in this, particularly that post-war justice that you just mentioned. Uh, too easy to get into a war and then wake up and say, oh no, what have we done? We've gotten into something that we shouldn't have. Or if you're going to go to war, it seems that you have to do a quote-unquote good job to end it quickly. 
Well, you can never really e- even determine the consequences. You know, when something like that is launched, an all-scale out-and-out war, you never really know the consequences of what will happen. No. The balance of power will shift. We, we Look at Libya. We went into Libya. And uh, in going into Libya, I, I don't know whether what the reasoning was there, uh, but nonetheless, we overthrew Gaddafi, and guess what we get? Al-Qaeda, yes. uh, something tenfold worse than he was. So you never know the consequences, and, and, and these rules that have been developed are important guidelines because only God knows the future. Oh, yes, yes, and, and that, um, I may be jumping ahead a little bit, that reminds me also of Iraq, and uh, yes, the original dictator was bad, and particularly the way he gassed the Kurds, but um, when his influence was out of the way, particularly when we withdrew and told the enemy what we were going to do in withdrawing, then something much worse came in. Yes, ISIS, unbelievably brutal and destructive in their tactics. They had no, uh, they had no restraint. Uh, right. ISIS uh, is, is still there in Al-Qaeda, but these groups are not governed by any sound principle or what I would call sense of justice or moral decency. It is whatever whatever can terrorize the most, whatever mm. violence they can commit. So, you see, we did replace it. Uh, sometimes we have to live with dictators, and sometimes we have yeah. to live with certain conditions because the outcome would be worse. Yes. Um, is it ever right to preemptively go to war? That is a, a good question, and it is a very difficult question. Uh, Israel and Iran are threatening each other, uh, as you know, right now. And Israel uh, has contemplated in conducting a preemptive strike against Iran because Iran's talk and so forth of wanting to destroy Israel is of concern to Israel. Uh, Yes, uh, I think all just war theorists at some point say that it's probably correct to launch a preemptive strike if you know that you're going to be attacked and people are going to be killed. But it has to be carefully done, very, very carefully done, because it's hard to read the minds and intentions of a person, much less a nation. So it, it can be done. And it also, we can, we can, I think, justly launch wars or, uh, or advance conflict in cases where humanitarian uh, situations need to be improved or uh, to protect our own interests abroad, I think we have to do that. So, yes, but it has to be done very, very cautiously, of course. Now, as we uh, look at the landscape today, um, some threats come to my mind, but I'm wondering, from your perspective, what do you see as the threats to the U.S. and, and to the West today? Oh, we have some threats. Uh, uh, everyone is talking about Russia now, of course, but uh, Russia, I don't think uh, think is a threat on the on the battlefield so much uh, as it is in intervening uh, and interfering with our affairs. Russia has the economy of about the size of France, so they have to be very careful. You know, in in the Cold War, uh, Reagan outspent them among other things, and it led to their demise. So you have to be strong. In your economics as well, uh, war uh, is costly economically uh, as well as every other way. 
And uh, we have two threats uh, constantly being hurled at us. North Korea is one. Should we preemptively strike North Korea? I read one article the other day where some pundits said that we would be in war with North Korea by April, the way things are going. Well, I don't know that, but I do know that we have to watch that situation very carefully. It's a threat. But also, Iran is a threat, not just to Israel, but to us. Iran really wants to take over the Middle East, and how we deal with that is is complicated. But really, the big, if you will, elephant in the room are not these nations, because they're small economically in many respects. Uh, it's China. Uh, China has the second largest economy of any country next to us, and it's growing very rapidly. We have about a quarter of the GDP in the world, but China has about 15% and it's growing. It has an enormous uh, military power and it's willing to use that. You know, those islands and things that they're uh, constructing in the South China Sea and uh, elsewhere is a threat to Japan, it's a threat to Korea, it's a threat to the Philippines, it's a threat to that whole region and to the sea lanes. So uh, ultimately, I think China would be our biggest threat long term. And I would hate to think that two powers of that magnitude would ever go to war. Mm, Yeah, very good point. Turn the subject a little bit, turn the page as it were. Um, We hear of persecution of Christians. Um, North Korea, certainly towards the top or at the top of the list. Uh, We've heard of heinous Uh, crimes against humanity from ISIS, Um, religious persecution and persecution of Christians. Uh, What is going on in the world today, and can you talk to that a little bit? Yes, I've thought a lot about this. Uh, I did, uh, uh, years ago, I remember lecturing on just war theory at a community college, uh, Orange County Community College, and we talked about that. It was just after the Iraq war was launched, and boy, was I beat up by the faculty. (laughs) (laughs) as there as a Christian. But I enjoyed it, uh, the give and take. And I've thought a lot about that since then, because from that period on, Christians, particularly uh, in the Middle East, have almost been driven out of their native lands. They were there long before Muslims were there, Uh, but they're being persecuted. Uh, I checked, knowing we were going to have this interview, I checked with the Open Doors. I don't know whether you know Open Doors, uh, ministry. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's a magnificent, uh, a ministry and it keeps track of uh, what's going on in the world with respect to persecution. Brother Andrew of the Netherlands wrote a book, God Smuggler, and he smuggled Bibles into these persecuted uh, countries and things and tried to help Christians. And from out of that, that ministry started. But let me just read, uh, something about persecution of Christians, for instance on a daily basis in the world. 255, according to his website or this website, 255 Christians are killed each day by those who persecute them. 104 Christians are abducted every day. Now we're talking every day. 180 women are raped, sexually harassed, are forced into marriages, uh, and forced conversions. Every day in the world, 66 churches are attacked. 
And every day, 160 Christians are detained and imprisoned without any trial whatsoever or charges launched. Uh, We have, for instance, a Christian minister right now who's been uh, imprisoned in Turkey, supposed to be our ally. And he's been 500 days in prison for no reason. It's just happening. And North Korea, on everyone's list, is the greatest persecutor. But almost all the countries that that are on the list of, let's say, the the, the, uh, 10 most, uh, uh, the 10 worst countries for persecution, all the rest of them are are all Muslim countries. Mm. So it is a great concern. It is a great concern. Uh, You've got at least open doors, countries on the list, such as Afghanistan, where we're fighting and trying to help, Somalia, Sudan, Pakistan, Eritrea, Libya even, of course, I mentioned that, Iran, Yemen, Iraq, even Iraq where we are. So, yes, Christians are being persecuted at an unbelievable rate, maybe more than ever in history. It's alarming to think that you wear a badge, as it were, on you, that you're a Christian, and then people see that badge, similar to what the Nazis did to the Jews and putting a badge on them, and then persecuting and, and killing. Um, I got a question. It's a little bit off-subject, but maybe not. What about self-defense and Christians faced with a deadly force? Is it legitimate to exercise self-defense? Oh, I think so. Uh, uh, you, you know, people might use some uh, verses in the Sermon on the Mount to be a pacifist, uh, but uh, that doesn't seem to be the overall teaching of Scripture. A person has a right to self-defense. I think it would be morally wrong for a person not to defend his wife and his children hmm. if they came under attack. Uh, so, yes, I do believe that self-defense is legitimate. Uh, I think churches have a right to defend themselves, and it may very well be that we're going to have to think those things through about how to defend our churches. Because if, if uh, 66 churches in the world are coming under attack every day, I think we have to think some of these things through. Oh, yes. Uh, self-defense is legitimate. I agree with you. And um, the schools and the shooting that we see at the school and just a little while ago, um, those are described as soft targets. Um, almost anybody can get in. They're not highly guarded. There's people there that don't have a way of defending themselves, and they're just easy pickings for evil people coming in. Uh, we got about uh, a minute left. Um, today we're talking with Dr. John Vance. What should Christians do in the face of all these threats and realities? Well, say the least, we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves about these kinds of issues. Normally, in our personal relations, we are to turn the other cheek. Uh, That is an important principle. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way, says the Lord. Uh, But in respect to nations and families, we do uh, want to see them uh, protected. If our politicians can walk around with an armed guard uh, why couldn't we station somebody in a school to protect the children? That's what I think. Sure. Uh, I know that's a little different from some people. But really what we can do most, I, and I am, I, have, I truly have been burdened by this. And so my prayer life has increased pertaining to persecuted Christians. I think I pray Amen. for them every day. 
And uh, that is our main weapon. It's uh, our warfare is often very spiritual and, and God is sovereign and he rules over all. And he, in his sovereignty, his hand cannot be stayed. And we ought to pray uh, every day that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, to pray for our daily bread, the Lord's Prayer. I, I, When I finish my prayer, sometimes I say, well, I've probably not covered all the bases. So I say <laughs> the Lord's Prayer after the prayer to make sure I've covered those things that okay. Jesus taught us to pray for. And is there anything else that you would recommend, Pastor Vance? Yes. Uh, Christians out there need to stay informed about the persecution of religious people. In particular, I'm thinking of the Christian community. Uh, The news media and our politicians, for the most part, are not going to keep you informed about Christian persecution around the world. That's a fact of life for many and various reasons. But we need to stay informed as to what is going on, and our churches need to do more to realize that uh, we're talking about the body of Christ and where members hurt in other countries and around the world, we all hurt. So I would say keep informed. That's very helpful. Thank you. Today we've been talking with Dr. John Vance, former pastor, Westminster Presbyterian Church, now semi-retired in West Virginia, still involved in pulpit supply and writing, advising, uh, Redeemer broadcasting, and like I said before, occasionally relaxing (laughs) in your home. Uh, (laughs) Pastor Vance, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's my privilege to be with you, Dan, and God bless you, and God bless Redeemer. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. Lead on, O God of mine.